Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2012. Titled, Growing in Christ, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 11 for December 8-14, to The Christian Life. Sabbath, December 8. Before we start, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, the creator of the universe, the one who gives us your word, the one who provides salvation through your Son, Jesus, the one who provides support through the Holy Spirit. And as we open your word this week, we just pray that we may come to know you even better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let's read that again, 1 John 3.16. By this we know we love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And the key thought for this week is, anyone can call himself or herself a Christian. What, though, does that mean in practical terms? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? James 2.14 The Bible emphasises sound doctrine, but this emphasis is in the context of holy living, as expressed in 1 Timothy 1 and Titus chapter 2 in order to point out that the true goal of biblical teaching is an ethical life, one that is manifested in obligations to others. In fact, if you look carefully at those texts in Timothy and Titus, they sound like doctrine with correct living, as if correct living itself is sound doctrine. The Christian is saved in order to be God's agent for the salvation and good of others amidst the great controversy between good and evil. To be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good, however, much a cliché, does represent a reality that Christians need to avoid. Certainly, heaven is our ultimate home, but for now, we're still on earth, and we need to know how to live while here. This week, we'll look at how some practical hands-on Christianity should be manifest in our lives. Sunday, December 9, Stewardship. When we think about salvation translating into service to others, we cannot avoid the Christian concept of stewardship. The Seventh-day Adventist Encyclopedia defines stewardship as the responsibility of God's people for, and use of, everything entrusted to them by God, life, physical being, time, talents and abilities, material possessions, opportunities to be of service to others, and their knowledge of truth. Question. Look at the following passages. With each one, ask yourself, given my particular circumstances, how can I manifest in my own life the wonderful principles taught in these texts? 
How should these truths impact the way I live and how I relate to others, to God and to the gifts that he has given me? First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 11 to 17. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwelt in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end, then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And the next one is Psalm 24 and verse 1. And that reads, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And then Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And finally, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The Bible teaches that the fundamental purpose for all of God's creation is to glorify him. Sin derailed this reality in a very big way, but God directed his saving action toward us in order to bring us back to participate with all creation in glorifying him. Christ purchased us for the sake of God's glory. It is as we acknowledge in both word and deed the complete lordship of Christ over our lives that we bring glory to God. The complete expression of Christ's lordship over our lives will involve our service to others through the use of our time, talents, abilities and material possessions. So, to finish today, read again the text for today. Which ones touch you the most and why? What motivates you to try to live a life that involves seeking the good of others as well as your own good? Why is it so important for you spiritually to live for others. Monday, December 10, Tithe, a mere pittance. Nehemiah 10, 38 and 39 reads... And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, when the Levites take tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers, into the treasure house, for the children of Israel and the children. Think about your life. Think about the brevity of it. Think about the utter inevitability of your death, unless Christ returns in your lifetime. 
Think what it would mean if, as many believe, the grave is the ultimate end. You're here, a spasm of cellular metabolism that does its thing, often in pain, hardship, fear, and then ends. One way or another, when all those cells die, nothing's left but a carcass on which bugs and bacteria feed until they also expire. Such would be the fate of all of us in a universe so large that our planet, much less our individual lives, could appear to be so meaningless as to be nothing but a cruel joke that most of us don't find funny. In contrast to that scenario, look at what we have been given in Christ. Look at what has been offered to us through Jesus. Look at what the plan of salvation tells us about our worth and about what was done for us so that we don't have to meet the fate pictured above. Question. What have we been given in Christ? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21, Galatians 3, Ephesians 1 and Revelation 22. What should these things mean to us? How should these promises impact every aspect of of our existence. Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And finally, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. Ellen White writes in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, pages 119 and 120, I speak of the tithing system, yet how meagre it looks to the mind, how small the estimate, how vain the endeavour to measure with mathematical rules time, money and love against the love and sacrifice that is measureless and incomputable. Tithes for Christ, O meagre pittance, shameful recompense for that which costs so much. From the cross of Calvary, Christ calls for an unconditional surrender. To finish the day, after all that Christ has done for you, 
Can you not exercise enough faith and give back to him a mere pittance of what you've been given? Tuesday, December 11, the responsibility to oneself. Jesus tells us very clearly that thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself in Matthew 22, 39. This is a very interesting text in light of the idea that we often look at love for self as the height of all that is opposed both to Christianity and to the idea of disinterested selflessness. What did Jesus mean by this text? How do we interpret and apply it in a way that reflects what true Christianity should be about? Love of self, in the Christian sense, isn't selfishness. It isn't putting yourself first before everyone and anything else. On the contrary, love for self means that, upon realising your own worth before God, you seek to live the best possible life, knowing that the results of such a life will be a benefit not just to yourself, which is fine, but also, and even more important, to those with whom you come in contact. Question. How would you relate Jesus' admonition above to the following texts? Well, the first one is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Then the Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 to 33. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And First Peter Chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The redemption that the sinner obtains in Christ brings about such unity with him that the Christian desires to live a life that is ordered after Christ's impulses. The sinner desires to have Christ's mind, to live no longer for oneself but for him, and to heed the call of holiness, separation from such things as our passions, the sinful trend of culture, and moral impurity. If you love yourself, you want what's best for you, and what's best for you is a life that is committed to God, a life that reflects the character and love of God, a life that is lived not for self, but for the good of others. 
the surest way to guarantee yourself a miserable existence is to live only for self, never thinking of the good of others. So to finish today, dwell more on what it means to love yourself in the Christian sense. How easy is it for this kind of love to degenerate into a self-destructive self-centeredness? What's the only way to protect yourself from this trap? Wednesday, December 12, Christian Marriage Humans are social beings. At home and work and in public and civic places, people are involved in all kinds of relationships. Responsible Christian behaviour ought to be evident at all those levels. And the Bible has relevant principles by which to guide these relationships. Question Study the following Bible passages in order to come up with a biblical definition of marriage. First of all is Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And then Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14 Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And finally, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. To define something is to provide its meaning. Today it is said that marriage is difficult to define because the meaning of marriage differs for different people, times and cultures. The Bible, however, has no such flexible idea of marriage. According to the Bible, marriage is an institution put in place by God in which two adults of different gender covenant to share an intimate and lasting personal relationship. Biblical marriage is marked by the appreciation of the equality of the male and female, a deep bond of unity where goals are blended and a sense of permanence and faithfulness and trust. As with a relationship with God, the relationship between a husband and a wife should be sacredly guarded. Of course, as we know all too well, marriage, even within the church, has become something that's often treated lightly. People enter into a union that they believe God has created, and then, when things get rough, they stand before a human judge who, through man-made laws and rules, separates what God has united. We all know that something is terribly wrong with this picture, yet, as a church, we struggle with what to do in these situations. 
together with the issues of polygamy, cohabitation, divorce, remarriage, and the practice of homosexuality, what challenges of human sexuality can you identify in today's society? What biblically-based counsel can you bring to bear on these issues? Adultery, fornication and pornography abound in society today, and these are hardly the worst of things that are out there. Nevertheless, God continues to look on human failings with compassion and tender mercy. Yet these practices remain failings that can be overcome through the grace of Christ. Therefore, redemptive efforts must aim high in order to attain God's ideals, as opposed to seeking to justify and excuse sin through a host of excuses and cultural qualifications. Thursday, December 13, Christian Behaviour Beyond the family, the Christian has other social and professional involvements, a clear recognition of the biblical view that Christians are in the world, but not of the world. John 17, verses 14 to 18 I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Consider the following three areas of daily life and discuss the Christian's responsibility in regard to lifestyle and behaviour. 1. Employer-employee relationships. The text we'll look at here are James chapter 5 and verses 4 to 6. Indeed, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And Ephesians chapter 5, sorry, chapter 6 and verses 5 to 9. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Apart from regarding employees as equals in Christ, the Christian employer must be guided by the principle that adequate work requires adequate compensation. On the other hand, Christian workers also ought to resist the temptation to be slothful at work. Ellen White writes in Christ Object Lessons, page 345, Parents cannot commit a greater sin than to allow their children to have nothing to do. 
The children soon learn to love idleness, and they grow up shiftless, useless men and women. When they are old enough to earn their living and find employment, they work in a lazy, droning way, yet expect to be paid as much as if they were faithful. 2. Civic Duties And our text for that is Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 to 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same." For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. The Christian places God first in all things and evaluates all actions and responsibilities from this perspective. For this reason, the Christian will, for example, oppose discrimination in any form, even if it is officially sanctioned. At the same time, loyalty to God first does not entitle anyone to become autonomous and create social disharmony or chaos. Christians pay taxes, participate in civic duties, respect traffic laws and property regulations, and cooperate with civil authorities in curbing or controlling crime and violence. 3. Social Responsibility And our texts there are Isaiah chapter 61, Verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, 
Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Discuss the following statement in the light of the passages above, and it comes from Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr, page 97. The Christian can exercise his calling to seek the kingdom of God if, motivated by love of neighbour, he carries on his work in the moral communities of family and economic, national and political life. Only by engaging in civic work for the sake of the common good, by faithfulness in one's social calling, is it possible to be true to the example of Christ. So to finish today, in your work and social interactions, are people able to detect your Christian values? Be honest with yourself, no matter how painful that might be. Which aspects of your life, if any, draw people to your faith? What does your answer tell you about the way in which you live? Day, December 14. From Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 547. Acts of generosity and benevolence were designed by God to keep the hearts of the children of men tender and sympathetic, and to encourage in them an interest and affection for one another in imitation of the Master, who for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. The law of tithing was founded upon an enduring principle and was designed to be a blessing to man. The system of benevolence was arranged to prevent that great evil, covetousness. Christ saw that in the prosecution of business, the love of riches would be the greatest cause of rooting true godliness out of the heart. He saw that the love of money would freeze deep and hard into men's souls, stopping the flow of generous impulses and closing their senses to the wants of the suffering and the afflicted. And from volume 1, page 325. If one has health and strength, that is his capital, and he must make a right use of it. If he spends hours in idleness and needless visiting and talking, he is slothful in business, which God's word forbids. Such have a work to do to provide for their own families and then lay by them in store for charitable purposes as God has prospered them. We are not placed in this world merely to care for ourselves, but we are required to aid in the great work of salvation, thus imitating the self-denying, self-sacrificing, useful life of Christ. 
And that brings us to the three discussion questions for this week. One, the issue of marriage and divorce is of great concern as it ought to be in view of the fact that divorce is so rampant in certain countries. How do we apply the clear teaching of the Bible when addressing this topic? If we applied the teachings of Jesus more strictly, would people be less inclined to divorce? Discuss this difficult issue. Two, dwell more on the whole question of tithing. Some argue that they should be able to give tithe to whom they choose instead of through the channels of the organised church body of which they are members. What's the great danger of that attitude? Three, as a church, we cannot ignore all the biblical admonitions regarding the caretaking of the poor and the needy among us. No one who calls himself or herself Christian can ignore this mandate. At the same time, what are the pitfalls of our calling if caretaking becomes our primary focus or the end point as opposed to the means to a greater end? Discuss. Inside Story. Our story today comes from Poland. The Compelling Message. Maria grew up in Poland. As a teenager, Maria searched for God, but she didn't find what she was looking for. Eventually, she returned to her parents' church and immersed herself in its practices, hoping for spiritual fulfillment. As she read the Bible, she discovered many texts that raised questions in her mind. The Book of Revelation posed the greatest challenge but her priest couldn't answer her questions. Maria's husband wanted to leave Poland, which didn't have enough television stations to satisfy him. Maria wanted to stay near her grandchildren in Poland, so she began searching for some television stations her husband might like. As she flipped through the channels, a program caught her attention. The speaker was discussing the Book of Revelation. She watched the program with great interest and tuned in again the next day to hear more. She heard sermons that challenged her long-held beliefs and sent her searching her Bible to verify what the speaker was saying. She realised that everything he said was supported by the Bible. Maria realised that the church of her childhood, the church she loved so dearly, was not following the Bible. She stayed home from church that Sunday, but she didn't know what to do with herself. She turned on the radio and was surprised to hear a worship service broadcast from a Seventh-day Adventist church in Warsaw, the capital city. She enjoyed the worship and felt spiritually refreshed. At the end of the broadcast, the announcer said that the pastor was waiting to talk to listeners' calls. Maria dialed the number and talked to the pastor. She asked so many questions. When she asked why she should believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the true church, he simply said, Base your faith on the Bible. Follow it alone. She continued watching the television program she had found and realised that it was a Seventh-day Adventist program. By the following Sabbath, Maria was convinced that God was leading her to the Seventh-day Adventist church. She found the church and recognised it as one she had visited as a teenager. I hadn't been ready to accept the Sabbath as a teenager, but on the day I returned, I accepted all the Bible truths I had been hearing. I love this church and the truths that I have found here. It's such a precious message. Your mission offerings help to support Adventist radio and television broadcasts that are reaching people 
around the world. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful. Thank you.